Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Today is Sunday, October 9th. This is episode 19, and in this episode, we're going to pretty much wing it because we made no notes or prep work and spent way too long playing pinball last night. I didn't get home till like 3 a.m., and I'm like half asleep as we speak. That's right. It's been an exhausting period of 24 hours at the uh, over 24 hours at this point, but we are very good about keeping with our schedule. Uh, people demand it. They expect it. They need it. And so here we are to provide it. Uh, I'm Dennis, by the way. I'm Tony. And okay, Tony, let's go ahead and just kick off with our intro. So uh, what's been going on? Why have you been playing so much pinball? Well, we attended uh, Penapalooza, which was a wonderful event, as always, in St. Joseph, Missouri. And I did terribly in the tournaments, but had tons of fun just visiting with friends and playing on so many pinball machines, including some stuff you just never, ever, ever see. Orbiter 1 is just the biggest. I mean, playing Orbiter 1 is like being drunk. I, I I actually kind of wish I'd played it while I was drunk just to see what that would have done to it. I think that would have been like mind blowing. That game is nuts. It's I've seen video of it before and I did I did finally uh try it. Todd had really suggested we I get up and, and give it a go. So I tried to sneak up during the survival tournament and get a game in. Uh Definitely weird. Uh, not one that would ever be on my short list to own, but it is a unique experience. So if you're at a show or anything, and you happen to see one, I do recommend you give it a try because it just, I don't know exactly what they were thinking. I guess it was, let's be really unique. And in that regard, at least they succeeded. Yeah, it is. It is definitely unique. Like I said, I don't know if it's uh, something that I would ever want to have in a, like a collection or something, but I definitely think it is something that somebody should play. You should yeah. definitely play here. Like, I, it's a, it was, it's a 1982 game by Stern. And let's see how many were made. There were 889 of them produced and I'd never seen one before last night. Well, I, that is a pretty low production count for a pen. But for the, for those of you who don't really know what it is, is it doesn't have the regular, pinball you know flat um play field the play field is all curved and twisted and there's a couple oh i don't know what you want to call them they're like they're like spinning wheel things that the ball will fall against and i'll speed them up and throw them so it can climb out of the dips and eddies so it's almost like uh dips and eddies almost like they're like the parts of the field are like gravity and the ball is responding but it makes the ball act really weird it relies on obviously you go and approach a game like this and you're going to think a uh, standard pinball gravity is going to be in play you're going to be watching for lateral ball movement while it moves vertically downwards towards the flippers it does not behave that way because of how the the play field is is done it's not wood that you're playing on so it's like a it's sort of a deformed plastic 
And so that, well, but it's, it's, since it's clear though, it's very hard for you to actually physically see really well. It's textured beneath it. So you'll think the ball is going to go one place, but it actually won't. It does, uh, it does look like though, after a little while, if you were to keep, keep playing it, you probably start to adapt to the patterns of it and be able to understand where the ball will go based off of particular shots. But at least at first, it's very disconcerting. It was pretty nuts. I enjoyed it quite a lot um, for something that was fun to give a go to. I played it, I don't know, a half dozen times probably. Uh, not as many times as I like lost myself in the insanities that are games like Attack from Mars or Whitewater. I played a lot of Whitewater last night. I really like that game. A lot. Of, it has a pretty big fan base, Whitewater does. Uh, I've never been a huge, I've never really been a huge fan of it myself, but uh, a lot of people love it, and it goes for a pretty penny at this point. One of those uh, sort of A-list Williams games that commands a lot at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And other than that, uh, that's my big pinball. Oh, I guess last week was the 403 tournament. Mm, yep. I played in that and didn't do super hot, but super hot. Uh but uh, it was a definitely a normal tournament for me. It was a lot of fun, and we will see. I know there's another tournament next week, and then there's another tournament the week after. October is a really, really busy pinball month here in the Kansas City area. It is. I mean, we had a fairly heavy summer with a. It felt like a fairly heavy summer. Maybe it's all just sort of blending together with launch parties and such. You know, we always expect a couple of monthlies. Uh, and then, uh, and we're not even in league season right now, which I, I don't participate in the leagues, but, uh, you, you expect a certain amount of volume there, but there's still a lot of, you know, weekly non IFPA events that go on and such. So there's usually something going on. Uh, but in terms of, uh, point scoring opportunities, there's usually the two monthlies and then occasional exceptions, but it just seemed very, very saturated until last month was sort of no normal. Uh, and now we're back to a uh, very ultra saturated. Of course, it is a five weekend month this October. So I guess it just worked out because uh, there's always this desire to avoid those monthly tournament weekends for adding in other events. And so there's always a sort of push to find find openings. And so you can very quickly fill up an entire month with pinball uh, just because certain dates are held sacrosanct. And so they, because they don't want to they don't want to cause conflict because then you might split your audience pool and lose out on people who will be like, oh, I want to go to your event, but I want to go to the monthly also. Yeah, that definitely can put a crimp in things um, other than the pinball related stuff. I have been doing uh, work, family stuff, wife still getting over stuff. And it's just it's been busy. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, it's been, this is my work-wise, this is our, our, we're entering our budget period. I actually spend the month of September working on our organization's budget. After I'm at that point where I've run it by the executive director. It's ultimately his budget, so it's his recommendations. He changes what he disagrees with me about. He makes his determinations on how to bring things into balance, and then we get ready to present that to the governing board, and then they get to deal with the shock of how the new reality is or isn't going to be. This last week especially has been that period where I've been working 
to get everything squared away with the boss so that we're on the same page and we're in agreement on what the budget says and what we're going to present to the governing board for their perusal. Uh, got that out of the way. Just take, but it's just time consuming is the issue. So that aside, I haven't been playing a lot besides the aforementioned uh, pinball tournaments that you had noted. And then yesterday, while I was getting ready to go to Pinpalooza, I tried to turn on my computer in the morning and it would not start up. The fans would kick on, the computer would not. So the power supply finally gave out the system. It was the system I podcast record on almost always. So that was a bit of a problem. It was over eight years old, though. So I was like, okay, I'll finally go and get a new system. So I had to run out to the store, buy the new computer, and go through that process of starting to migrate all the files over before Pinapalooza. I, of course, didn't get that all done. And since I didn't get back until after 2 a.m., I did not do it (laughs) until I got up this morning. But I think I have everything transitioned, hooked up and working. Of course, I'm going to remember certain programs I forgot to reinstall as I go about it. But by and large, everything is squared away, running much better and quieter now. The system had been giving me some warnings for a while that it wasn't happy. But at that age, it's, it's not that surprising. So aside from those things, I think the only other real intro update I'll give is I have at long last finally finished the History of Rome podcast. As uh, longtime listeners may recall, I had to start listening to this because I mispronounced Deus Ex. It's actually not true. I did start the podcast before I did that, but that was always the, my rationale for hanging hanging my hat on that. I just like history podcasts. So anyway, that was over 74 hours of content. It was ended years ago. He actually has a, that's Mike Duncan's podcast. He actually has a whole other podcast that he does now, but, but History of Rome was his first and it was really interesting because I did not know, but but you know what you hear through Shakespeare and stuff, you go through the Julius Caesar and Augustus. And then after that, you typically maybe, you know, about Constantine and such, but you don't know a lot about the other emperors or anything. And this actually went all the way through to the fall of the Western empire. So now that I'm finally done with that back on topic, I was able to add on some new pinball podcasts because while I was doing history of Rome, I refused to add more podcasts to the queue. I was just like, no, I'm going to punch through this. Uh, Anytime any of the casts I was already following would come out, I'd have to move those episodes up top because they're usually news cycle oriented. So I was, you know, every week I had new uh, Xbox podcasts and I have new pinball podcasts and I just have to keep pushing those up ahead of Rome. I finally now all through it, I have added three new podcasts. So, and they are all pinball themed. So I've added Beige Night uh, pinball podcast. Skillshot Pincast and the Slam Tilt podcast. And I'll have links to all three of them in the show notes. Um, and you guys can check them out. I've only heard their latest episodes on all of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm so far behind on podcast listening that it's not even funny because I've been doing the, I've been listening to audiobooks instead of podcasts. So I need to, I need to work on that, but I, I'm, on, I'm on book 11 of the Wheel of Time out of 14. So I'm almost done. I'm getting there. Other than that, I've got a couple other th- games I've played and stuff uh, lately, but I'll talk about them in the video game section. And I think that's enough. And we can pop on over to what's pretty much been our intro already and going into the pinballs. Yeah. Well, you did bring up uh, Pinapalooza. I thought before, you know, really saying anything else, I guess I, in case anyone isn't, and there are probably a lot who aren't familiar, Pinapalooza, it's a. Uh, Basically, a couple times a year, there's a private collector in Missouri who invites us an invite event. Uh, there tends to be an IFPA sanctioned tournament at it, which Tony mentioned. 
And uh, it's just it's it's really neat because his collection is is quite impressive and it's over 80 playable machines. So, I mean, outside of a pinball show, a lot of people just aren't able to have access to that uh, kind of experience. And so I extend my thanks to Todd for inviting me out there yet again. A lot of the uh, regular Kansas City players were there. We had people from Wichita, a lot of people from the Missouri side, all the way out from St. Louis and in between uh, would come out for either doing the tournament or just to go and enjoy the free play of it. And so it's just it's a lot of really well-maintained machines. There's a lot of good camaraderie. And it's just it's really it's a really cool event. And it's, you know, it's something I would never be able to put on because there's just no way I could have that many pins. I don't even think I could fit that many, even if I could afford them. So it's just it's really neat uh, to be able to go. And, uh, you know, it's a nice change up from just the sort of the usual pattern where you go and do the, the nicely maintained location pins that we have. But just to go and see this variety of the like the Orbiter one, as you mentioned, or getting to do a Cactus Canyon or maybe playing a Mayfair or a, a four square. I mean, he, he does all the eras, anything with flippers is fair game. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And it, anyway, it's a, it's a pretty cool event. So keep your eyes out on um, possibly squaring an invite for it. If you're in the Kansas city area, uh, if, if you, if he knows you, he'll probably invite you. That's kind of how it goes. But anyway, it's just uh, it's a really unique opportunity because outside of the Texas pinball festival, this is easily the most pins I've ever seen in one location. Yeah. And it's a nice, very eclectic collection. See how I did that right there? Yes. Uh, with, with Bravo. Stuff from all eras. And I mean, games that are, or I mean, from really old EMs that are addictingly fun to even some of the more modern games. I mean, nice ACDC and everything in between. It, it's definitely a collection to be envied. And so, anyway, I think we've spoken enough about that, so everyone can be tantalized at what they didn't get to experience. So, uh, I want to briefly move on to American Pinball. Uh, we discussed that at length on the last episode. A lot of the other pinball podcasts have been talking about American Pinball. I don't really have a lot new to say on American Pinball right now, so I'm not going to say a lot. Uh, I guess I should, I do need to acknowledge, uh, I had, I, you know, it's come up. People have, have contacted me about it. That, uh, yes, I, I went on Pinside. I released the business license for American Pinball. I asked the village of Streamwood to pull it for me and give me a copy of it. And they did. It's an open record. I didn't really put a lot of commentary with it because that, that is just sort of a evidentiary release. It's sort of a, just, it's a records release that I am doing. I've been working on this as sort of a podcast oriented research project. I'm not done yet. I, I am still awaiting uh, or the articles regarding incorporation for the organization. And once I get those, uh, they're being sent. I just don't have them at the time of this recording. I will, I guess, release my findings is the sort of thing. And it'll just be an info dump. And I don't know if I'll just tack it onto the next podcast. If it comes early enough and it's too much content to do, I might try and just solo record something so that that can be standalone and people who don't care about this topic can skip it. I haven't decided yet. I have you're a lot of. So you're going to cheat on me? No, no. I'd have to run it by you first to figure out, or have you come on and we just and we do it as a tag team. Uh, I don't know if you want to sit through all of it, or if you'd rather me just record it all and then we do it like an interview where you hear the audio and then we talk about it and do the commentary after that. I don't know how long it'll take to run through. I tried to write up a narrative, and uh, my fingers got sore. 
So I gave up and I wasn't, you know, it's still a little too free form because I don't have all the pieces of information that I want. I have a lot of records already stored. Uh, I'm going to probably just Google drive them all into a, into a folder. Actually, I'm already, I've already got the folder created. I just don't have it publicly shared yet. And just, this is like the last piece of the puzzle that I intend to pursue. I've seen, obviously I, I've released a little bit of that. I mean, I, I released that and I also, well, this wasn't secret. I, I found the video footage of the Houdini flashing, uh, from gigabyte, which is the booth that hosted it at G2E. So I've also put that out there. Uh, and that's really all. And I know it fueled a lot of discussion and I'm, I'm not weighing in on that discussion in terms of, do I think you should be interested in Houdini or American pinball? That's not my position. I mean, I have an opinion of it, but that's not my position. My position is if you're interested in truth, then this is what you have to do. This is truth. You have to investigate. You have to be bored pulling research and you got to look into things. Releasing press releases and speculating is not seeking truth. Research is truth. And this is my example of it. And I'm not going to do it every single time. It's too exhausting. And I like to do what the rest of us all like to do on these podcasts, which is we like to commentate. Not, I'm, we're not journalists. It's not, I was never trained as a journalist. We are not uh, an investigative news team. I would love for Pinball to actually have a news-oriented entity that did not think it was their mission to protect pinball companies and I think that's what's needed right now with American pinball because there are a lot of people who are concerned. And we need to remember that in a market-based economy, the most important key to it, which very rarely is ever obtained, is that consumers have perfect information. Obviously, that's almost impossible to achieve. But the idea is you are a fully informed consumer, and that's what you use to decide based off of, you know, that's what makes the market work for when you make a determination on your purchase. You are not an informed consumer on American Pinball right now because you have questions and those questions have not been answered and they probably won't be answered at Expo. Some of them will be, but a lot of them won't. And some of them may never be answered. I got curious after I saw the business license because of the reference to J-pop on it. And so I've kept digging over these last couple of weeks, but it's slow going. So I don't have anything to release on that here. I just want to let people know I am. Yes, I, I, I did that. I'm still going to do that. Uh, it's just, it's slow. So sorry, but I probably won't have it before Expo. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? Yeah, I don't really have any, uh, anything new to add over my thoughts besides the fact that it's obvious this isn't a, a troll or anything. It's all real. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't think, and from the, some of the last sets of rumors I read, but I, haven't really read much this week in case anything new popped up. I don't think we're going to see anything flipping anywhere. I don't think it's going to be anything more than just a meet and greet. Hey, we're here and this is what we're doing. And hopefully some questions will get answered, but I don't think until after expo, we're really going to have anything to add to this topic. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point. And they, uh, a couple, a couple of the, uh, the primaries behind American Pinball participated in an interview with Pinball Magazine. And they released that as their first podcast. And we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Because if you want to hear the corporate response to some of these questions, because he, uh, because Pinball Magazine did ask some good questions. Obviously, they didn't ask all the questions. And how could they? And of course, when you ask questions, you get answers and you have new questions. So I'm going to link that. So those of you who want more, go ahead and listen to that. 
I did extend an invite to their info email to American Pinball before I released the business license to invite them onto the show. They, as of my last check today, have not responded to that email. We may be too small for them. I may have pissed them off because I put out the business license and they may never gotten the email. I don't know. The invite was extended. They did not accept it. I do not expect them to ever be on the show, especially now. But, uh, you know, but the information I'm releasing is nothing personal. It's completely open record stuff. Um, it's the price of doing business. So deal with it. <laughs> Dennis is making enemies for one company at a time. Yeah, this is me being nice. Uh, the, uh, I'm, no, I, I mean, this is okay. I, again, I, you know, most of my work is public sector oriented and I, I come from a background of research and most of that research is policy research. You know, again, mundane stuff, just looking into the impact of potential laws, all that. Was it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Helping come up with new stuff, you know, that sort of thing. Now, on occasion, when there have been issues, then we would engage in what I would refer to as opposition research. And we usually meant me. So that would also be my task. I probably do it less than once a year, but this is kind of walking that line. The only goal in this case is to find out as much information as possible and then just release it. Opposition research style is find as much information as possible and then release all the stuff that makes the opposition look bad. So that's being mean. We're not being mean. We're just releasing the truth. It's all about the truth. We're just truth seekers, at least in this particular instance. We we prefer just commentating. It's so much easier, quite frankly. Uh, and because of our commentating nature, of, I don't think a commentating podcast can ever really uh, do the news. You can give news updates. I mean, we do. Our, lots of these shows revolve around the news. We, we rely on these updates. After Expo, what is every pinball podcast going to talk about? We're going to talk about Expo. Of course we are. And we're going to give in our opinions on all the stuff that's announced. And, and you know, hopefully you guys are entertained. And that's how we do it. But because of that, we'll never be impartial enough to be a trustworthy source for news news, uh, for investigative journalism style stuff. And the hobby may be too small to support something like that. Honestly, the best way to have an investigative sort of pinball thing would be to have someone actually covering it who didn't even like pinball. To have someone who'd be like, I don't care if Stern or JJP or any of these others survive or thrive. My sole purpose would be to release information, to dig and re research and release and, and let people make up their own minds. That would be the, an investigative journalist approach. But I don't think the hobby can do that. And I think we see, you know, not name, not, I'm not targeting anyone specifically, just I think we see in a lot of these sort of news, even the most news oriented of our sources, they get starstruck and they tend to just puppet the press releases. And it's not just in pinball we see this either, but I think it's really bad in this hobby because the hobby is so small and access is so critical if you want any sort of scoop that you end up being nice when maybe you should have been honest first and worried a little bit less about hurting some feelings. But, uh, you know, I don't, I can't, I, in a way, I can't imagine that anything we're putting out is going to hurt anyone's feelings unless they feel they had something to hide that they couldn't hide on the public record. But, you know, I don't know. There may not really be anything there. I suppose the business license thing was seen by some as having something there. I'm not convinced it necessarily was anything major or not. I couldn't tell. But 
it just, it is what it is. It's interesting though. That's the thing. It's interesting. And in a hobby that doesn't have a lot of news, uh, something that's even mildly interesting can feed a lot of discussion, but that's why forums like Pinside exist. It's just to, to feed off of that fuel. But let's pivot a little bit from American Pinball, since Expo has come up several times while we were discussing it. Any thoughts on Expo? I know some of the other podcasts are doing prediction shows. I don't really have any predictions myself. I I don't get a lot of kicks out of kick, uh, guessing what's going to happen in an event like that. But I didn't know if there was anything about Expo you wanted to talk about before it happened. I will predict that people are going to play some pinball and that companies will show games. There so, we go. Perfect prediction. So, I'm, so, I'm done. That's it. We're done. Drop yeah, mic. Whoa, 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 whoa. So your prediction, by its definition of how you framed it, means you think at least one company is going to have a flippable game there. Oh, so you have a prediction within your prediction. Okay. so I so- am reasonably confident that Batman 66 will be flippable. I am reasonably confident that there will be lots of playable pinball game, pinball machines on the floor. So yeah, I'm going to go ahead and go with that. I, I think your, uh, your predictions are pretty reasonable. I don't disagree with any of them. Also, another prediction being in Chicago, somebody's going to eat some good pizza. Chicago deep dish pizza is not pizza. It's a casserole. Burn yourself. Sacrilege. Why don't I drown myself on that uh, lake bed of marinara sauce that would be on your quote-unquote pizza? Because it tastes so good. I will stick with New York-style pizza, you know, the true pizza. Sacrilege. The origin. More of the origin than Italy itself of pizza. Your little flippy floppy pizza that you got to bend weird to keep it upright so so you can even eat it. It's just... It looks so That's sad how you eat it. That's how pizza is supposed to be eaten. I, uh, uh, they should not have brought this up. This is not appropriate. If this was the Eclectic Pizza podcast, we'd be able to talk about New York pizza. We still couldn't talk about your pizza because it's not pizza, but it is pizza. It's, it's, it's wonderful it's bread. pizza. It's bread it, with it, way too it, much it. sauce. Oh, no, no. When you get it, more calories out of the crust than you do the toppings, it's not pizza. Just saying. And I'm going to go science. ahead. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to take. I'm going to take a full another step. I'm going to put my foot down. Geno's is my favorite Chicago pizza. I said it. It's Geno's. Sorry. I, you know, maintaining my pizza purity. Do not pick sides in the, in the casserole debate of 2016. So I don't know. Maybe the listeners will react with pitchforks to your statement. I have no feelings on the matter. That's None. because you don't. You, that's because you you refuse to accept the truth that is good pizza. I don't know. You're awfully. You probably prefer Chicago style hot dogs to New York hot dogs too, and that's just as silly as well. At least no. those are still hot dogs. I'll give them that. But they couldn't change. Get yourself could, a hot dog. Yeah, get yourself a hot dog. Yeah, I mean, no. Uh, they at least have a hot dog there. Granted, they I'm, cover it in a bunch of garbage. I'm not, but I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of tomatoes on hot dogs. Hot dogs need mustard. If you're really feeling fancy, relish and kraut. That's about it. Hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that's. I think that's pretty tolerable. It's still, I think, a little heavy. I like the dog to shine through. That's my. my mustard definitely. I put on, onions though as well. Onions are key. Onion. Um, yeah, onions are good. The the acid is a good contrast to it. 
See, I've I found as I as I've gotten older, I've kind of become really big and enjoyable in the crowd. I really like sauerkraut, so like a good Reuben. Oh, a good Reuben. We're now the eclectic food podcast. Apparently. And people are like people are probably thinking, gosh, they said they were gonna wing it and now they've become what they hated on all the other podcasts that we're going off topic outside of the intro. <laughs> um Okay, and, well, and they're right to hate, and they're right. You all are right to hate us for this. It's my fault. I br- I I brought down the pain. Okay. Well, let, let's go with this. Since neither of us really have any big thoughts on Expo, I'm going to hold any real thoughts I have until reports actually come out of Expo. And since we're more than done about ta- talking about different pinball manufacturing companies because it's old hat and everybody's tired of it, I think it's probably time to play a game. Oh boy. And let's play the game of what if you were a pinball manufacturer, what kind of tables would you make and what kind of rules would you set for yourself? Oh, interesting. Well, uh, the first thing I would do is make sure that everyone I was in business with, I wasn't ashamed of Uh, going a little more. That is true. But going more serious uh, in spite of that. Here would be my here would be my thought. I think. Looking, I'd look at the market, and when I look at the current pinball market and the current pinball manufacturers, I think the key at this point is to go opposite. It's total opposite daytime. So it is not boutique, high-end, high-price pinball. My approach would be cheap games that are operator-oriented. So here's my, here's my envisioned company. I'm going to call it FPS pinball for first person shooter pinball. All right. The competition target here is stern. So I'm looking, what do we got? Pro models setting aside the MSRP. They presently run new in box roughly $5,000. So for FPS pinball, I go in acknowledging that the only way to beat stern is to beat the price. So that means my actual new in box cost needs to be $4,000 or less. And in fact, it would be better to get it under $3,600. So that way I'm beating out the highway pinballs kit pricing where you can just buy the play field and drop it into the cabinet. It's supposed to be about 3,600 to do that. So if I can undercut a full machine at the 3,600 price point, then that puts me as the best fiscal deal in the market. Now, my ideal number that I would really, really love to have is 3,000. I don't even know that's practical to obtain, but I don't know if any of this is practical to obtain because I'm not a manufacturer, but this is my world. This is my example. This is my vision. So this is where I'm going with this. So how do we do it? So FPS pinball, obviously the key is the game, the games have to be cheap. They have to be cheap to manufacture, but they have to be desirable from an operator perspective. So you have to, the operators have to want to buy it, but obviously I've got to, I've got to save money somewhere. So on the cheap side, some of the tactics I would imagine doing is obviously limited toys. And by limited, I mean like one. Uh, again, we've seen that on some Stern Pros where there's like one major toy. It's kind of like that. Just just have a toy. Something that helps put you into the world on the play field. But it's not going to be littered with toys. It's not a Lawler machine. Play field art. Okay. I'm going to just describe it as Spartan. Maybe a return to focus on labeling shots and such. Yes, this can mean drop, drop, a dropping clip art, photoshopping. You know, the whole point is that the play field will fit the theme, but it's not about it being an artistic beauty. It's not a, it's not going to be a Ghostbusters play field. It's not going to be 
you know, littered with hand-drawn art. The idea is to put out a playfield that makes sense and is affordable to do so. Same thing for the cabinet art. Pretty basic, probably a focus on using logos. Uh, so that when someone were to see the cab, they'll know what the game is. But again, it's not about impressing you with the art package because this is not targeted to the homeowner. It's targeted to an operator. Uh, another cheap tactic would be reliance on playfield designs that can use common parts. Obviously, this is done a great deal by a lot of the manufacturers already. But what I'm, what I mean by this is, you know, creative use of pop bumpers, stand up targets, things like that. Research and development on unique playfield designs would be limited. The focus is going to be taking on what worked in the past and making minor adjustments. Like maybe you look at a couple of games from the 80s. You take the left half of one, the right half of another. You're like, okay, these worked. People agreed that these shots make sense. We know we can stick them together because of how they're laid out. Go forward with that. It's going to be about using ideas that good players prioritized in the past, not about hiring long-tenured designers. FPS pinball would not rely on bringing in any established pinball designer. They cost too much. We got to, you're going to start from scratch and you're going to rely on what was already done and worked in order to move forward rather than try and create whole, whole new art, essentially, because it's a cheap tactic. It's something that I think needs to be done to meet the price point I outlined above. So what would we do to, for the desire side? Why would operators want the games? Step one. All the games have to be licensed. No original concepts ever. The operators have to have games that the public will recognize. Stern already, we know, gets the biggest licenses because they're the biggest pinball manufacturer. But there's a ton of stuff that's still left on the table. More obscure licenses is fine uh, if it's worthwhile, as in obtaining the license. The cost behind that is low enough that it makes sense to do a more obscure license. But what I think, based off of the name of my pretend pinball company would be, is I think you need to target video game licenses. I think gamers are a natural demographic to be attracted to pinball. And I think shooter games, namely first-person shooters, though, despite my company name, it could be any shooter, those in particular would be great themes for pinballs. There should be a Halo pinball. There should be a Call of Duty, Battlefield, Overwatch pinball, Uncharted even. There are all sorts of rich licenses that would really, really work. And the public, the gamer public, which is a very broad public, is going to recognize this. Don't forget that video games as an industry make way more money than Hollywood does at this point. Another desire tactic, translate art. Uh, I've already said a de-emphasis on playfield art and cabinet art, but translate art would have more effort put into it than the two aforementioned art packages because it's a key point of attraction. So it needs to look good because people are going to see that and they're going to be like, oh, oh, that's Master Chief. I want to play that. Uh, LCD in the back box. Animations here. That's why I want the LCD. Obviously, everyone's going that direction now. It makes perfect sense. Animations are the key concept because, again, it's about attraction. When you're playing this game, your friends need to be able to watch something. And while it's nice to watch the pinball and actually learn how to play the game, a lot of times people can't be hovering right over your shoulder. So they're going to be watching the screen. They need to be seeing stuff. They should be seeing Master Chief. I'm sticking with the Halo example. Blasting things, blasting Covenant as you make shots. Same thing uh, in this regard with voice work. You want at least one key voice from the license, ideally more, if there are indeed more that are recognizable. And the final piece is code. There has to be a depth of code. 
It doesn't necessarily have to be Lord of the Rings or even modern stern deep code, but it needs to be deeper than the Bally Williams code of the 90s. I think the deeper the code, the more desire you get on the homeowner end to be interested in collecting these, even though they aren't the visual works of art that they expect from the boutique manufacturers. So that's my overall strategy, a pin that is priced to rapidly let an operator earn their investment back and actually earn it back on location, uh, not having to factor in the future sale of the pin into their recoup. Uh, and a happy side effect, I think, is that homeowners, uh, home collectors, I should say, who think like I do, and they aren't after rare collectibles, but they're just after fun games, would find these easier to afford. Uh, and a price has to be paid, though, to get that cost down so that they can afford these games. And so that's where I give all of those sacrifices. But I think there is a lot of money being left on the table because people are priced out of being able to obtain machines. There are people who are buying these, um, you know, eight-year-old Stern machines because their budgets say $3,500 to $4,500 and they're priced out at $5,000, much less seven or eight. And that's what I'm trying to exploit. So that's my broad-based idea. Well, that's not a bad idea at all. I can see a lot of uh, <clears throat> hope and desire for machines like that. I know new in-box machines in a price point uh, like older used machines would be well-liked. My first thought on this for my own personal company is I would never do this. Um, I have nowhere near the skills or the thoughts to try and back something like that. But if I did, this is the shot I would give it. All right. Well, we're how I'm going to, how my company that I would never create, but if I did create would go, it, it falls in the accessible category, much like you did. Uh, I would like to see lower, uh, price points. Um, I am not personally a huge fan of the different trim levels that have gotten so popular. Um, and one of my first rules would be that there are not going to be any trim level differences. There is one machine and that is it. Uh, I would also go with a strategy that would be centered around, um, much like you, I would go for the less involved uh, cabinet side art and stuff. Uh, I personally like the old, uh, cabinet arch, which were, which was very, you know, just minimalistic designs that were kind of logo-ish or paid some attention to what the game was without being the insane depths of the modern cabinet arts. Um, but at the same time, I am going to shy away from the licensed product only. I think there is a lot of room for unlicensed uh, games out there, and I think a lot of people would like unlicensed games, uh, but I know for a fact that they don't sell as well. I mean, it doesn't matter. They're, they're just never going to sell as well. So what I would like to do is sell twin games. I would put together a system where I would have a licensed game. The licensed game would be released, and... Six months to a year after the release of the licensed game, I would reskin and release the same play field with minimum, with, with minimal changes, just toy changes and this and that in an original theme at a lower price point. I don't see where that would actually help my market value, 
but it's something I feel for people who don't care about the theme. Like if you're not an Avengers fan, you're not going to want to buy the Avengers. But if you liked the Avengers layout and it had a theme you liked, it would be more interesting to you. And I would also uh, aim for my um, license themes for stuff that is would fall under a bit more non-mainstream. Um and also, much like has been done with, say, like, uh, Houdini and stuff, stuff that is in the public domain is always a good idea for a grab. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing a Dunwich horror game and, uh, which would be the Cthulhu mythos, of course, because everybody loves Cthulhu. Uh, I would like to see another or a return to games that have more of the kind of punky feel like a, like a, a, a ray gun Gothic type uh, designs as an original theme. And if you had to do a uh, license pen that fell into that same area and then you did a reskin into a ray gun Gothic type game or a diesel punk type game or Something along those lines, uh, maybe some pens put together based upon like, um, different literature, older literature stuff just for that kind of feel would be what I would aim for. I think the important things is, uh, much like you said, I think back box art is super important. The translite is the most important thing. LCDs are a requirement code. I want code that's at least as deep as the, the late nineties games without necessarily going as insane over the top as some of the modern machines do though. If you get the code deep, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but that would be my overall thought on the creation of a company. Uh, you could it'd let you put out more games. The problem being, of course, that you're fighting yourself because you're putting out two games that are very similar. But I think the difference between having a licensed game and then having one that is just an original thing is going to appeal to two completely different demographics of the pinball community and keeping the price point down. I'm not going to aim as low as you have, but I would like to keep the price point at Stern Pro pricing or below. But again, I'm not a fan of all these different trim levels. I don't, I, I don't, especially the trim level differences where there's gameplay differences. There should never be a gameplay difference. If I buy a $5,000 game and you buy the $8,000 version of the same game, there should be zero gameplay differences. If there's art differences, okay, but I shouldn't, we, there shouldn't be this list like you have where the same game is in the top 100 in two or three different places because there's so many gameplay differences. They have to be considered a different game. And that's about how I would do my pinball company and then fail and go bankrupt. Yeah. I have no idea if my strategy is going to be viable as a concept either. Uh, but it's what I'd want to do. It's the niche that I think is not being met. I think by the resurgence Stern obviously is still to some degree, at least meeting this need because they were the only ones that were still, they're the only ones that have been around long enough to remember when it was all oriented towards the operator market anyway. And I just, I see now that there's a lot of hobbyist interest, 
all these things are swooping in and they're trying to attract to the home market, the home collector, because the home collector, at least in America, is the bulk of the buys at this point. I completely get that. That's why, while I think the idea of oriented around the concept of the operator is useful for one, not forgetting about on-location operators, but two, I think even just catering to them could target a lot of home collectors who, quite frankly, are just priced out. Pinball collecting shouldn't be a rich man's hobby. It wasn't always a rich man's hobby. And I don't think that it, I don't think that it even has to be from market, from market demographics. I don't think it has to be. I don't think the manufacturing costs, the BOMs and all of that are actually honestly at the point. I think it's inflated beyond what it needed to inflate at. I might be totally wrong. Don't know. But that would be my guess would be that's where I would try and move in on and exploit on not trying to be the latest in the fancy pants stick in as many Hasbro toys as possible and say that you owe me an extra two grand because I gave you toys. Yeah, because I think that that would also make a big opening uh, for the modding community, which is already very popular, letting people personalize games. If you haven't completely overdone anything too much and everything is very much a, it lets you take a machine and make it more personal, put in the extra toys you want or the extra interesting little things here and there to doll it up while still starting from a much lower overall start point price. Yeah. Well, anyway, those are our ideas. What I think I'll do is after maybe a couple of days after this episode is launched, I'll go on to our Facebook page, which for those of you listening who don't know is facebook.com slash eclectic gamers podcast. And I'll kind of pose this as a question to see if any of our listeners would like to give some opinions on if they were a pinball manufacturer, what, what sort of route would they want to go? So, and you can always weigh in on if you guys think our ideas were really stupid or whatever, but um, I'd be interested to see some other suggestions because I, I think there are probably a lot of different approaches. We still only have a handful of manufacturers, and it seems like most of them are kind of doing the same thing. So I think there'd probably be a lot of room for different ideas, but eh, here are two of them. Uh, right. I think that gets us through pinball. So let's move on over to video games. I actually have very little in the way of video games to talk about. I know that there have been a lot of video game releases recently. The New Gears of War is out. I believe Mafia 3 just hit, and I don't own any of those. I did get an early birthday present of Doom. Um, Doom, as they say. Uh, but I haven't started it yet, so <laughs> I, it was it's actually installing right now. So um, I might next time be able to talk a little bit about Doom, but right now I really cannot. So, Tony, video games. Tell us something, anything. Anything about video games. Okay, I've been playing. I did pick up a game last week from Knucklecracker, uh, who some people may know because of some of the other games they've done that are pretty popular. Um, like they did the Creeper World games, which I have not played, but after that, after looking into them, I'm probably going to end up picking up Creeper World 3 at some point and playing it because it looks really interesting. But what I picked up was a game they put out called Particle Fleet Emergence. And with Particle Fleet Emergence, what you're doing is um, you are the head of a corporation who's fleeing the galactic corporate bigaboo into the unknown regions and moving towards the old uh, origin world where people came from. And you are exploring and what you do is you end up building up a fleet of ships 
and plans to make ships and there is an enemy out there and it is literally uh just like a particle physics driven swarms of little glowing dots and it's this is not a deep game this is not a a starcraft or something i was turning this into no man's sky with particles that attack this is not no man's sky this is nothing this is a game that i played uh 12 hour 12 plus hours of over the course of the week while i was watching luke cage because it's a game that you can set, that you can play while you're watching a show without having any real issues it's not so deep that you get involved in it and you're like oh oh yeah i was watching a show type thing uh, it's just kind of a fun little, uh, strategy ish game. It's, it, it's, it's like a, a physics real time strategy fleet building thing. Uh, I don't have a really good way to explain it because it's just a little, it's interesting. But one of the nice things about it is you can build your own, you can make your own levels. You can make you, you can design your own ships and you can play them in the, in the levels that come with the game. There's a, a bunch of story levels that tell a story that's interesting, I, I, I guess, but it's just about basically teaching you how to play the game and trying different things. And then there is, uh, some other levels that come packaged with it that are harder, just more challenging, try this type levels that were like built by the alpha testers and beta testers and stuff. <clears throat> and then you can also go online and download levels made by other people. And you can, you can find ships made by other people and try them out. And it's just an interesting little time sink. Like I said, it's not high fluting, some super amazing game. It's not going to change the world. But it is a lot of fun just to burn time while you're, you know, watching a show or doing something else. Well, those often come in handy. Um, any other video game stuff you want to talk about? Um, I am almost done with Mad Max, but I wasn't willing to play Mad Max while watching Luke Cage, and I really wanted to watch Luke Cage, so... I didn't really play it this last week. Mm. Well, uh, understandable. And video game wise, otherwise, I have not done a whole lot of stuff. That's where most of my time has been put in. I know I've been thinking since you had to get your new computer yesterday of what things I should start telling you to buy so you can play good games that are part of the wonderful world of PC gaming instead of your dirty, dirty console gaming. Well, I'll, you know, I'll probably keep my eye out for the, when the new Civ hits, for example. Of course, I was probably going to keep my eye out on it even when I still had my eight-year-old computer, but. Well, yeah, that's a Civ game. You, I mean, Civ games are always great. I'm trying to see. I, I'm always a big fan of all the all of the Civ games. Let's see if I remember how to log into my true Steam achievements. For people who don't know, they're like the true achievements is for Xbox, and they also do like true Steam achievements, which is for Steam related. And don't they have one for PlayStation? Yeah, they have a uh, true trophies. True trophies and, for PlayStation. Yeah. And full disclosure, I I am on volunteer staff at True Achievements. I help with the genre assignments. So if you don't like a particular genre, uh, chances are I helped assign it. So, yeah, let's see. I've completed. I, I actually got all of the achievements on Particle Fleet Emergence. All twenty achievements 
over the course of this week playing it. Hmm. Well, maybe the that should be one that I watch for, that I consider buying, that I contemplate. It, the the achievements are really easy. The achievements are complete every mission of the game, of the story mode. That's it. Hmm. That's all 20 achievements. So they're not they're not worth a lot of points, but it, it it's definitely something that is out there. The other one, yeah, listen, I'm going to pick up their other game at some point. Uh, Creeper World 3 is the most modern version of it, that, and it gets a lot of good reviews from what I've seen. We have to let me ha- know how that is once you actually play it. Yeah, it's supposed to be a similar type game where it's a you're basically holding back a flood of stuff and slowly pushing back a flood of, in this case, instead of particles, it's fluid. Mm. But you basically build a base and then push it back and push it back and push it back and push it back. I like those type of games. Those are my my time waster games. Uh, I know, like, the this would be my version of, like, Candy Crush. <laughs> Except okay. for it's on computer. It's just something that I will play and just walk away from at times. So when I'm not wanting to get something too deep, but I'm wanting to play something while doing something else. So, but I haven't, like I said, otherwise my video gaming has been very, very light this week. Okay. Well, we'll just have a light video game session for this episode. (laughs) Uh, Tabletop, our final segment. Let's go ahead and transition into it. Tony, I know you've got some stuff on tabletop. I have lots of things on tabletop. Okay. I've got a few things on tabletop. I got a chance a few weeks ago to play a game called The Networks. And it is an interesting little uh, game. It's a 60 to 90 minute game that you can play with uh, one to five players. Um, I don't know why you'd play it with one player because it doesn't really seem to have anything uh, going for it then. But what you do is... Every player takes the part of being a network executive and you are running a network and your network starts with very, with, with three, you're, you're planning the three time slots, which is, you know, your prime time, time slot, your early time slot and your, and your late time slot. And you start off with like three really horrible things like the, 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 power hour of, of, you know, test signal power hour and, 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 and the dog food home shopping network type stuff. And as the game goes, what you're doing is you're buying new shows and all now all the show cards are not all of them, but the vast majority of the show cards are basically just humorous takes off of shows that have existed in reality, like, or very, very tongue-in-cheek stuff uh, references. And each one has a number of viewers and cost, and you can put advertising with them, and you can you can purchase stars to work for your network who you can put in your shows that will increase their viewer count and ads that increase your money revenue so you can buy better stars and better ads and better shows. And... Every turn is basically a season, and your shows age every season. So they all start out, oh, this is season one, and the season one, this show will earn 
four viewers, but season when season two comes up, this show will earn you ten viewers because of popularity. And then season three, it'll own, earn you like nine viewers, and then it'll start going back down, or or different. They're all different numbers, and the whole thing is you're building up. You're trying to get the highest viewer count of all of the networks. It is a fun game. It's not very hard. Uh, it would be pretty easy to play with uh, not young children, but definitely with, um, uh, like, say, age 10 plus uh, is where they say on what they recommend on board game geeks. Um, and I could see it as being easily playable with this group. But it's just kind of fun because, you know, do you go to be the sports channel or are you, are you trying to build yourself to be an ESPN type channel or a comedy type channel or a mix of everything type channel? Uh, who gets to make it all the way to the end and, and have the highest viewership? And then you, I mean, you earn points off your shows being in reruns and stuff. And it's like I said, it's not crazy, uh, but it is a fun little uh, game. All I could think of was a really bad stars joke. <laughs> That's basically what it is. The stars. Well, I was just thinking stars and, and buy, buying better stars. And then that made me think of as anytime I ever hear the word stars, I thought of resident evil and stars with the nemesis project, which then of course links all the way back to the pinball segment with the stern electronics pinball machine stars. Oh man, a resident evil pinball machine. I thought, uh, you know, taking a stars electronics, a stern electronics, taking stars and actually retheming it with the nemesis project stars from resident evil. Uh, could be worthwhile. <laughs> those chain, those chimes in that machine gotta go though. There's no way to make those work with that. They gotta go. All right. So any other tabletop games? Um, not that I have played recently, but I know there were still some games that interested me from all the way back at Gen Con. Oh, yeah. That Gen we Con. never got a chance to talk about. Well, they've been kind of squeezed out because we've had so many other topics to hit on. I know we just keep hitting, and I find it so hard to talk about a game that I've never even played. It's like, well, I haven't played this game, but I watched some videos and it looks cool. It doesn't make I, it makes me feel kind of silly. Yeah, I, I get I get that. Um, you know, it was a I find the same thing with the video game segment in particular is I because I don't want to just cover. Well, here's what's coming out. Here's what's coming out. There are scores of video game podcasts that just do that and so it's real if that's what someone's interested in they shouldn't even be listening to us they should listen to a video game podcast that talks about new releases and things along those lines now if we do something right after the event uh well like for example being able to but we had the hands-on experience when we did CantCon. see that went really well because we'd actually gone there and we could talk about our experiences but Right. The E3 episode worked in part because we went in with a very deliberate mindset to keep track of all the stuff and talk about what we actually saw rather than, uh, you know, any sort of sense of gameplay. It was really just more about anticipation and such. So, yeah, it's always sort of tricky if we don't have any hands on experience. Uh, in a way, we, you know, we run into that with, with, uh, with the upcoming pinball stuff. We just don't talk about like how we think they'll play. I mean, I have no idea, for example, how aliens will play. I have no comment on it because I have, you know, I haven't even seen how it plays. So why would I speculate on it? So yeah, it's just, it's the trouble with all these things and tabletop. There's just so much stuff that gets to come out now. Thanks to the fundraising prowess of Kickstarter and such. There's just a lot of, there are just a lot of games that get developed 
And a lot of them are probably really, really good. And a lot of them haven't been played by anyone we know. It's, tra- yeah. it's tragic. And a lot of, I mean, there's so many, I don't, I, I don't have all of them. I don't have time to play all of them. Uh, I, I have so little time that I tend to aim what I'm going to do at very specific things. And a lot of times for me, it's the tabletop gaming that drops by the wayside just because I have so few chances to do it every month compared to everything else. So I guess we've reached the end of our show for this episode. This is our failure cast because we didn't do any prep, any of our prep, normal prep work. And I feel very bad for you listeners. I, 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 I am sad. I don't, I don't feel bad <laughs> for them at all. Hey, we're out on time again, as usual. Thank you very much. <laughs> I am exhausted. I did not want to get up when I got up, but here oh, I am. Oh gosh, it's just. Been I didn't get to bed till by the time I got home and got laid down and stuff. It was after three, and I woke up at six thirty, and I basically passed back out for a few more hours, and the rest of my day I've just been zombied. That's what I'm. I'm going to probably go fall asleep here while this is compiling. That's probably what I'm going to do. (laughs) But anyway, that's it for this show. And we should be back within the two weeks as usual. I already mentioned earlier in the cast how you can reach us on Facebook. But if you want to email us, you can do so at eclecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com. And we're available on Twitter at eclectic underscore gamers and Instagram at eclectic underscore gamers. And we love ratings and reviews on iTunes. It is critical to helping additional people be able to find the podcast, especially since our name does not say tabletop, video, or pinball in it anywhere, just gamers. So uh, we are not usually at the top of the list when you search for those words. We are, thanks to our loyal uh, reviewers who have given us ratings, uh, we are showing up higher than we used to, but we always appreciate additional feedback uh, either through the aforementioned contact means or in the form of a rating and review. And I know a lot of you don't use iTunes. It's just, it's the place where the reviews are done. Even my software podcast addict, it pulls all the reviews from iTunes when you want to see the podcast ratings. I was playing with the features and actually noticed that it was kind of cool. So hmm. uh, that's about it until next time. I'm Dennis and I'll say goodbye. I'm Tony. And I say, it'll be better next time. I promise. <laughs>